He was uh, born and raised in Pasadena, California, went off and um, uh, got an a MS at UCLA and a PhD at Montana State. And then he went back to uh, be at uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in, uh, in Pasadena again for 25 years. So I was talking to him ahead of time and he says, uh, I said, so it's a lot colder up in Bozeman where he lives now. And he said, oh, but I love it. And uh, he, he loves being away up, up, in, up in nature. But so I, he, among other things, was a program manager overseeing um, the, um, uh, what was it, the, the astrophysics theory program uh, at NASA headquarters in Washington for a while. So he's both done a lot of research on his own and he has supervised and funded research uh, uh, in than done by others. So he has certainly had a very distinguished career. Ron. Thanks. The only thing uh, I just want to add is that being the discipline scientist for the astrophysics theory program sounds much cooler than it really was. Um, all I did was go to meetings and answer the phone. And the phone conversation was, where is my money? So. Um, <clears throat> I'd, uh, I'd like to start the way I start each opportunity I have to talk about the interface between science and religion uh, with two quotes as soon as we get the quotes up on the screen. Oh, in fact, there they are down there. Uh, okay, so here's the first one by a famous scientist. <clears throat> this is Lord Kelvin. We don't have an exact quote, but this comes from about 1900. There is nothing new to be discovered in physics now. All that remains is more and more precise measurement. Um, so first, let's be clear. Is this right? Okay. So this is uh, absolutely not a correct statement. Um, so how could uh, he have said this? Maybe he wasn't very smart or didn't know much physics. Does anyone know who Lord Kelvin was? Uh, we name our absolute temperature scale after him. He did marvelous things in electricity and thermodynamics. He was aware of the entire field of physics at the time. He was one of the brightest physicists around. So here's a question you need to ask. How could he be so wrong? How could someone who knew that much come to this conclusion and be so obviously wrong? While you're pondering that, let me give you another quote. This is Joseph Fielding Smith in 1957. It is doubtful that man will ever be permitted to make any instrument or ship to travel through space and visit the moon or any distant planet. So <clears throat> I should point out first that this is not a scientific conclusion. This is something that he, a conclusion he came to by reading the scriptures interpreting them and deciding that earth was for man and the moon was not, and so we have no business being there. But let's be clear, was he right or wrong? Good, yeah, this is not correct. So do you know who Joseph Fielding Smith was? Was he someone who was ignorant of the scriptures or not very smart? Uh, neither of those, right? This was a guy who knew the gospel as well as anyone in the church at this time, 
This was a giant in scriptural understanding and interpretation. And so the other question you need to be asking yourself is how could he be so wrong? And as you're pondering that one, let me give you a quick quiz here. If you ever see what happens to be a conflict between science and religion, can you think of at least two places where the problem might lie? <laughs> All right, <clears throat> so I hope, uh, hope you can answer that question appropriately. Let me go on now to talk about my subject, which is the uh, uh, comparison of Joseph Smith's, and therefore Mormon cosmology, with modern cosmology. Joseph Smith was mostly interested in the religious side of things, but he was an extremely inquisitive man, and wrote this, <clears throat> Thy mind, O man, if thou wilt lead a soul unto salvation, must stretch as high as the utmost heavens, and search into and contemplate the darkest abyss, and the broad expanse of eternity, thou must commune with God. He was curious about a lot of things, and I think the last statement means to me that he had done this, and let me suggest to you that Joseph Smith had some insights into cosmology that others of his time did not. Now, I don't want to dwell too much on Joseph Smith's cosmology or argue that. Let me just point out to me what are a few things that are pretty obvious uh, from his teachings. First, <clears throat> Joseph Smith taught in uh, the King Follett Discourses, and I believe the words are, the pure principles of element, he said, can neither be created or destroyed. So a scientist would say that matter or mass is conserved. You cannot create it, you cannot destroy it. Another statement of his that I particularly like is in Doctrine and Covenants section 131. There is no such thing as immaterial matter. All spirit even is matter, more refined and pure. Everything is matter. Nothing exists that is not material. And finally, I think the most straightforward reading, though others might disagree with this, the most straightforward reading of the King Follett Discourse and the Sermon in the Grove with its infinite chain of sons to fathers uh, commits Joseph Smith and we as Mormons to a universe that is infinite in size and eternal in time. Now fortunately for Joseph Smith and for those who like to wed, just got a new paradigm here, wed their religion to science, for about the first 90 years uh, there was a pretty good agreement between what science believed and what Joseph Smith had taught. In particular, toward the end of this uh, period, it was found that matter is actually a form of energy, and at the very end of this period, it was quite well understood that matter and energy were the same thing. So, um, hmm. okay. Uh, is this thing working or are you doing it for me? Okay. <laughs> Good, because we're going to have some trouble if I'm counting on you here. Um, <laughs> no offense, right? It's just, <laughs> I know what's coming here. So we would say uh, by 1930 that it's matter or energy. They are the same thing, which is conserved. And of course, as a scientist, everything is, is matter and energy. So there's not much big deal there. And of course, uh, during this period of time, it was obvious that the universe, to be stable, had to be uh, infinite and eternal. 
So the marriage was going swell until 1930. And what happened in 1930, I guess, is there was a divorce for a little while. Uh, and let's see where that came from. The problem is the discovery that the universe was expanding, and if you back that expansion up in time, you get a, a big bang. So if we take a little block of the universe here, just think of this big cube. It goes out further on all sides, but this is just a cube of it. And if we're looking at it now, then uh, 10 million years ago, it would have been this size. And before that, it would have looked like this. And if you keep going back and back in time, that same block is becoming fewer and fewer uh, cubic inches until it gets very small, very close indeed, and finally ends up at a single point. And that's as far as science can really go. We can see this and we come to the conclusion that everything that exists had 13.7 billion years ago to be right here in this room. Okay, right, right there, in fact. And uh, the question then is, um, well, where did that come from? Now, the problem is that in 1930, you had a, some people waiting in the wings trying to give the answer to this, and in particular, a lot of religious people uh, said, uh, well, it's that uh, God who exists outside of space and time created this out of nothing. Uh, and I'm going to take a slight um, side path here I just have to comment on that. Okay. Uh, I, I, there's things about that I have never understood. Sometime I'd like to pin down a Catholic or Protestant and try to work this out with him. But So let me get this straight. God who lacks nothing, needs nothing, desires nothing he does not already have, nevertheless creates a universe and people who will live in it. Why would he do that? What's worse, he loves good and hates suffering, yet the result of his action is that most of his creations, at least his children, who, don't, who come to earth and don't hear about him but don't have faith in him, will suffer forever, eternally shut out from his presence. Why would he do that? And as we now know, he makes it all so big. Why would he do that? Well, I don't know. Let's get back to the story. God was, well, the, uh, the scientists also had an answer as to where this singular point at the beginning of the universe came from. And, um, and you were looking at it. That's not completely fair, but the thing is, this is a tough question, and no one really has a good answer. And the best answer is, say, well, maybe it was a quantum fluctuation in, of course, there wasn't anything there, so I don't know, in something. Okay. But there's one thing on which the Catholics and the Protestants and the scientists and everyone else agrees. Joseph Smith had to be wrong. Okay. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> so uh, let's take a look at this and um, see one particular example of that. So in uh, about 10 years ago, there was a new book that came out called The New Mormon Challenge. And there was a chapter in there called uh, Creation and Defense of Creation, sorry, um, 
an examination of the Mormon doctrine of creation and a defense of creation ex nihilo. And uh, basically what it said was this. This is one of the phrases I love from it. The Big Bang, they said, represents the origin of all matter and energy, even of physical space and time themselves. And that's right, as we have seen. Therefore, it is irreconcilable with the theory to hold that matter-energy are eternal or that God is the physical product of a beginningless progression. Thus, Big Bang cosmogony is a veritable dagger at the throat of Mormon theology. Now, I'd just like to point out that this was, uh, this book came out in 2002. As it came out, it was already about 20 years out of date, and the things that they said about the Big Bang uh, were known to be absolutely wrong. So, in fact, there, are, there were big problems with standard Big Bang cosmology. There are big problems, and I'd like to talk about one of these, though there are probably three or four others. The problem here is what's called the horizon problem. So the idea basically goes like this. If we start off with that singular point, and I want us to look at two little pieces. See, so those, those will eventually become galaxies or something. Um, and we're going to let this universe now expand. At first, it will expand quickly. And then as time goes on, the expansion will slow up a little bit because of the self-gravity in the universe. But these two things will end up uh, on opposite sides of the universe from each other. Okay, now I'd like you to watch that again, only this time as we watch the universe expand and these two little points that I'm interested in, we are going to put a... Uh, a little green arrow there that represents something communicating from the one on the left to the one on the right. The fastest it can go is the speed of light, and as a result of that, um, as the universe expands, uh, some, this, this one on the right is moving uh, away from where something that would have been there in the middle or away from this one at a speed faster than the speed of light. And so this uh, little green arrow has not yet caught up to it. Um, it's still trying to catch up. But at this point, we'll suppose that um, this galaxy or something sends a signal back in the opposite direction. So as time goes on, that signal comes back toward the direction it came from. And finally, it gets to a point where we see it. Uh, this is coming to the Earth. And of course, the picture that it will convey was what the universe was like at the moment that little signal left. So the universe will look like this. So here is the point. This is at the time when that little green arrow had not yet cut up. There is no way that the material on the left and the material on the right could have had any communication, any connection with each other. So, of course, something was coming from the other direction as well all that time, and it would arrive at the same time. And so here is what we call the horizon problem. If we look off in the one direction, and then we turn around 180 degrees and look in the other direction, 
we see two rate regions of space, and those two regions of space had, at the point the light left, never been in communication with each other. They could have exchanged no energy. They could have had nothing bounce off one and hit the other. They were completely out of contact with each other. And yet, we can look in those directions, and we see that to five decimal places, they're at exactly the same temperature. That cannot be. There's no explanation for that. This is a big problem for the Big Bang. Now there's a solution, and it's no longer such a big problem, and the solution is the idea of cosmic inflation. In this, we start off with a universe that begins expanding very slowly, and then at some point, some energy is released, the expansion is suddenly driven to be exponentially quick, it grows to the universe we see now, and then slows up by its own self-gravity. I'd like you to watch that again and notice that because of the early slow expansion, the place that was our block that we're looking at has plenty of time for signals to go back and forth and communicate. Then once it, once it does this exponential expansion, the universe seems much larger. I mean, that block is much larger than it ought to be if it had been uh, expanding uniformly. And so as we look off in one direction, and in the other direction, we see two regions of space that because of that early slower expansion were long in communication with each other. So in fact, it is no surprise that they managed to get to the same temperature to within five decimal places. So the horizon problem is solved by this idea of a Big Bang followed by um, an early time of inflation that expanded the universe uh, greatly in a very short period of time. Uh, so here's an important question. So what? What does that do to the uh, conflict that I was bringing up? And you could say, well, haven't we just uh, replaced the simple Big Bang, where we start off at an initial time at zero, and it goes, increases in size, but slows up due to its own self-gravity, with a more complicated one, in which uh, the universe starts off from a Big Bang, expands greatly, and then slows up. Uh, isn't there still a single creation of something out of nothing at the instant of the Big Bang? And the answer is no. And here's, no, okay. And here's the reason. Because for that inflation to take place after the universe was in existence, there had to be a mechanism. Most people, uh, most physicists, uh, think of a scalar field called the inflaton, and this is a graph of its potential energy as a function of, its, of the size of the field. It would start off at some initial uh, point near zero, and as it uh, rolled down to the bottom of the potential, as the value of that field evolved, it would provide the energy needed to drive the inflation and create that huge uh, exponential increase in the size. But because there was a mechanism, because there had to be a mechanism in the existing universe after the Big Bang, that mechanism must still be available in the universe today. And so there still should be able, in our own universe, for this thing to take place again. And this gives us, leads us to the idea of eternal inflation. That is, some areas of our own universe may yet have this sort of uh, inflation happening to them. 
So this is a nifty, uh, I didn't produce this, this is really good. Um, uh, picture, you have to think of these as little two-dimensional surfaces, and this is a graph of a set of them. So we start with the Big Bang, that initial singularity, then something happens, that scalar field intervenes, and inflation occurs. Uh, shortly after that, there is the uh, uh, recombination that allows us to see the three-degree microwave background. Sometime after that, the first stars begin to form. And so in each of these slices, uh, the, we see the universe as it evolves, and we are living up here now some 13.7 billion years after the beginning. But the point then about inflation is because the mechanism still has to be available, we could come to some point in our, some little disk in our present uh, two-dimensional disk in our present two-dimensional space here, and that could inflate and uh, produce another one of these things. And of course, if that could happen, then let's think about the Big Bang that created our own universe. It could be that we are not the first space that ever existed, in fact, pretty likely, but that we were such a little point in a previous universe, and if we just look at uh, one slice of this, that um, as time goes on, the existence of this new little piece of inflation happens at the expense of moving the rest of the space away from it. And so we would have existed in a previous universe that, and so our inflation was not creating from nothing, but in fact was um, creating from an, a universe that already existed and just inflated. In fact, this picture, however, makes it look like the distance from up here and down there is now huge, and that doesn't quite work right. So the only way you're going to be able to see this properly is this. Uh, I'm going to give you a two-dimensional universe now that is the surface of a sphere. So the Earth would be a little two-dimensional disk, and you and I would be little two-dimensional stick figures that run around here. The inside of this sphere does not exist. The outside of the sphere does not exist. Only the two dimensions make up the entire universe, but because we live in a three-dimensional universe, we can picture the universe expanding. So let's do that. I'm going to let it expand and get you know, bigger and bigger and things getting further and further away. But now at some point during that expansion, some region might also experience inflation. And if that was the case, the expansion of the universe would look like this, getting bigger and bigger. And suddenly, at some point, there is one of these inflation events. That little piece begins to grow exponentially and creates a new bubble universe. And in fact, we may have lived in one of those. And we ourselves might be the product of a previous universe, and which also might be the product of a previous universe. So let me go back. We'll take a look at the cosmology up to 1930 when the divorce occurred, um, at this point, because of the Big Bang, we could no longer say the things that we have here, but because of what we now know about the Big Bang and because of the possibility of eternal inflation, uh, cosmology in the present day agrees with all of this and points out that you know we're not for sure, but it's certainly possible that the universe can be infinite and eternal 
and we are once again reconciled with the science. The marriage has been put back together and Joseph Smith and modern cosmology have absolutely no variation or difference between them. And I think that's right, that's it, thanks. Uh, okay, so these are slightly unrelated, this one at least, to what I just talked about. Um, <clears throat> why should we believe that dark matter exists when there is no evidence? And is it not more likely that our understanding of gravity is incomplete? Uh, there, of course, is plenty of evidence or no one would believe in it. Uh, it is certainly possible that our understanding of gravity is incomplete, and a lot of very smart people are looking at uh, possible alternatives to the theory of gravity as an explanation for that. Uh, certainly, whatever you get has got to be complete, that is, it has to reproduce all the things exactly that we know uh, gravity predicts correctly, and then has to give us something else to solve that question. This one says comment on dark matter, so I just did that. Dark matter um, is obvious from the cosmological observations uh, that as we watch the expansion of the universe, the amount by which it uh, contracts and the way that structure uh, is produced that we see in the early universe leads us to say, okay, there is a component of matter out there which is dark, which is about uh, four or five times as much as the matter that we can see. No one quite knows what form it would take. Uh, a lot of searches have been made for it and have not been able to find that, but the evidence is there, and so everyone pretty much agrees that it has to be there. Would the theories and understanding of quantum mechanics advance if scientists realize that energy is alive and applied principles of biology to the studies? Uh, I don't know. Um, I think I'd have to get more uh, understanding what that question's about. So if you want to see me afterwards, come grab me and I'll try to respond to that. Uh, is it possible that the Big Bang occurred from the death of a previous universe? There is um, a viable uh, theory of, um, uh, of cosmology that says that there was, in fact, in a previous universe, a big crunch that brought everything together and then there was a rebound. In fact, I know personally the guy who first invented this. And it's, it's viable, uh, we don't know for sure. It's a possibility that there was a previous universe that came down to a singularity, rebounded, and created the universe that we now uh, sit in. But that's, uh, it's a possibility. And ultimately, some of the things may be observably determined, but at this point, no one knows for sure. Is it possible was the question. The answer is yes. The universe is filled with galaxies. What is outside the universe? There is no outside the universe. Okay, if the universe is infinite, then as far as you can go in that direction, there are galaxies. If the universe turned out to be finite, I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, then as far as you can go out in that direction, there's galaxies. It's just if you go far enough, you end up back here at the same podium, okay? But um, there is no outside. There is nothing outside the universe. In any direction I can point, I can, find, I can tell you everything that's there. Could a black hole have something to do with the bubble caused by universe inflation, that the black hole 
was where the birth of the universe came from. Um, a, a black hole is a solution of the Einstein equations. There are a number of ways that you can think of physically that geometry of a black hole coming into being. Uh, in a sense, you could argue that the singularity at the beginning of the universe uh, is a black hole if you believe that there was a singularity there. Uh, but it doesn't fulfill a lot of the um, geometrical requirements of being a black hole. So it has some things in common with a black hole and some things not. And I guess I can't give a very good answer to that, but my best answer is I don't think so, but uh, I, I'm not sure I could answer that completely. Very good. Good. Thank you. Thank you.